Well, I genuinely wonder what he thought was going to happen next, or what he thought it was going to be like. You see, uh, so the day had started like any other, and what you need to know is that all he wants to do is follow the Lord, which explains everything that he's done his entire life, including the rather significant journey that he begins early this morning, packing his bags and, and setting out with a sense of purpose. All he wants to do is follow the Lord. But he never thought that, uh, that this would happen. He never thought that he would see the glory of the Lord, a light so bright that he can barely see. And he, he never thought that he would hear a voice from heaven speaking directly to him. And yet that's exactly what happens. And as it does, he remembers what happens when people see the glory of the Lord. He remembers that, that when Moses saw the glory of the Lord, a little bit of that glory rubbed off on him and his face, Moses' face, began to shine. But it's also when he remembers uh, that you can see a little bit too much of God's glory. I mean, that if you, if you look at him directly in the face, our sinful bodies just can't handle it, which is why the Lord has said, no one, no one may see my face and live. I mean, he never thought that this would happen. And yet it does. That's why in this particular day, he does the only thing that he can think to do. He falls down on his knees in the presence of God's glory and humbles himself before him. You know, it's at this point uh, that I could be describing uh, the experiences that Peter, James, and John have in today's reading from Luke chapter 9 the transfiguration of the Lord. But I'm not describing uh, the experience of Peter or James. I'm describing the experience of Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus, uh, who has an experience like this. And I genuinely wonder what he thought was going to happen next, what he thought it was going to be like to be a Christian you see, many of us know uh, the person that Saul becomes, Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, the, the founder of countless churches around the Roman world, and the author of in the New Testament. And yet early that morning, Saul wakes up and goes on a journey. And like I said, uh, that journey is to follow the Lord, except he just doesn't know what that means yet. You see, he thinks that following the Lord means persecuting Christians. And, and to the best of my understanding, this is why God reveals his glory to him. God turns his life upside down. This is why God sends him out on a And many of us know what happens next, that, that Saul is blinded by this encounter and sent into the city of Damascus. That a man named Ananias lays hands on him and that something like scales eyes as his sight is restored. But the part I'm fascinated with is what happens next. You see, Saul, Saul who becomes Paul, begins to tell people about Jesus. And those people uh, begin to believe what he says, but, but not all of the people begin to believe. And, and actually, they begin to have, ask a question. How, how can we kill Paul? 
Now, the good news is uh, that Paul slips away in the middle of the night, and it's, uh, it's a great story. You can go and read it in Acts chapter 9, but it's at this point that I genuinely wonder what he thought was going to happen next. I genuinely wonder uh, what he thought it was going to be like to be a Christian. I mean, did he think that he would face trials and persecutions like these? Did he, did he think that he would go on to experience frustrations and disappointment? Did he, did he think that he would have to stop a lot and at times that were pretty inconvenient? And, and did he think he'd have to set aside his own preferences like he talks about in, in 1 Corinthians because his preferences just weren't as important as the kind of love that God called? I genuinely wonder, what did he think it was going to be like? You know, the more I think about uh, this question, uh, the more I find myself asking another, uh, what did we think that it was going to be like? What did we think it was going to be like to be a Christian? Yeah, I know that we're, uh, we're not Paul, and I know that the kind of profound experience as in Acts chapter 9, and, and the kind of profound experience that, uh, that Peter, James, and John have uh, in today's reading isn't the norm, it's the exception. I know that out of, out of the billions of people who've made it their mission to follow Jesus, it is uh, a short list, the number of people who see a burning bush or receive a from the Lord or finding themselves standing in his presence. And yet, the question still stands. What do we think it was going to be like to be a Christian? And over the years, I've uh, shared bits of my story. Uh, in a lot of ways, I tend to think of a pretty conventional Christian I mean, I was, uh, I was baptized as a baby. I attended Sunday school on and off as a kid. And, and in high school, uh, going to youth group was as much an excuse to spend time with friends as it was a legitimate attempt to engage in my faith. And, uh, and I suppose all of that is to say that when I went off to college, I wasn't planning on or expecting to become a pastor. See, I, uh, I was uh, studying engineering. and I ultimately landed as a student in my college's math department and well, I'd flirted with the idea over the years of going to seminary, and a few people had even mentioned it along the way. Uh, that's also why my senior year of college, I found myself studying abroad in a math-intensive study abroad. How, in the fall of 2009, I, I found myself in Budapest, Hungary, studying at the College Internationale, and, and never expecting to experience one of those faith-sustaining mountaintop experiences. I don't want to misrepresent what happened. I mean, there were no burning and there were, there were no lights from heaven, just a, a set of circumstances that give me a picture of what kingdom of God is like. So I've been in Budapest uh, two, maybe three weeks, and I, I really hadn't put a lot of thought into finding a church or what that would be like. I mean, my, my Hungarian was uh, limited to asking for a glass of water and making sure that I got off at, a, at the right stop at the train station. When a friend of mine from the math program I was in mentioned that he had found a flyer for an English-speaking church and that he was thinking about going that weekend, I asked if I could join 
On Sunday, we, we go together, and on my way home, the strangest thing happens. I'm a, I'm a bus ride and several metro stops away from church when someone approaches me on the metro and begins speaking to me in English, which is kind of strange because in Budapest, people speak Hungarian, and they, they tell me that they had seen me at church, and they wanted to know if I would join them and their young adults group for lunch. And it's at this point that I... I have this decision to make. I can either follow them or I can disregard everything I've ever learned about following strangers in Central Europe. I do the latter. And again, there were no burning bushes. There were no lights from heaven. We had an average lunch at a Turkish restaurant a couple blocks from my apartment, but I did start going to their young adults group and Bible study. We go out to dinner afterwards. But, but I do remember this moment at our Christmas party at the end of the semester. So one of the couples had uh, invited us over for this party, and, and I remember looking around the room and realizing that there was a Christian from every continent on earth at this party. See, 2,000 years ago, Jesus did something. And the good news went out. And then in December of 2009, I'm, I'm standing in this room, and I realize that that message has gathered people from all around the globe for a Christmas party in Budapest, Hungary. You know, it still gives me uh, goosebumps to this day, uh, because when I, when I think about the new creation, when I think about the fact that there will be a marriage feast with the lamb, I don't know what that'll look like. But I, I do remember going to that party at, at Caroline and, and Patrick's apartment. You know, none of our stories are, are the same, but I'd imagine that many of us have them. These mountaintop, faith-like experiences. I mean, maybe it was a moment in worship, maybe Maybe it was a, a young adults group that you were a part of. Uh, whatever it is, uh, moments like these tend to do two things. You see, uh, first, they sustain our faith. They sustain our faith through the, the long road of life because they remind us of God's word and promise. I mean, the, the scriptures, they, they tell us this good news, and then occasionally our experience says, you know what? I think I've seen a little glimpse of what that looks like. You know, it's, a, it's good, and it's godly, and, and among other things, it sustains us through the long road of life. But like I said, moments like these tend to do two things and not just one. And, and the second thing presents this challenge. The challenge of, of coming down the mountain. The challenge of going back to everyday life. The challenge of, of facing reality in the valley or in the plateau. And on the 1920 uh, Paris Olympics, uh, two British athletes competed fiercely uh, to win gold medals in the areas of track and field. And the story is uh, told in the uh, 1981 Oscar award-winning film Chariots of Fire, and it's a moving story, the story of, of this one man who is competing as much against himself as he is uh, against others, and the story of another man, a, a devout Christian 
who refuses to compete on a Sunday morning, uh, competes instead, and, and then receives the medal. Obviously, the most significant part of this movie, or at least the most significant part for us, is what happens when they return home. You see, the, the movie shows this scene where these two athletes are returning to Waterloo Station. You know, one of them uh, gets off of the train, and there's joy, and, and there's excitement. But all the while, as the scene goes on, you find yourself asking the question, you know, where, where is Harold Abrams, the other athlete? You know, his, uh, his girlfriend is looking for him. is out, And it's at that point uh, that he appears from the train. You know, he's achieved everything. He's been up the mountain. He's holding a gold medal in his hand, but, but now, now he realizes that whatever he does in life, he's never going to go back up there again. Instead, he has to, he has to come down the mountain and, and face reality. See, our mountaintop experiences, they, they tend to do two First, they, they sustain our faith through the long road of life. But second, they present this challenge. The challenge of, of coming down the mountain. And, and that can create a whole bunch of problems for us. As we wonder if, if the thing that we experienced up there was, was really real. As we slog through the everyday realities of life and, and wonder if the promises that God actually makes really make a difference here and now to us. And as we even at times try to claw our way back up the mountain, or, or better yet, try to bring that experience up on the mountain down here because, because things are a mess in our world. And, and we hope, we believe that if only we can bring that moment back here, then everything will make sense again. You see, the challenging reality is that on this side of the resurrection, we don't live life on top of the mountain. And the attempts that we make to, to get back up there, they might just keep us from doing the kind of things that, that God wants us to do. I mean, I mean, just consider the scene that we heard about at the beginning of our service. Jesus comes down the mountain with Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John, who would rather Jesus stay up on top of the mountain but what does Jesus do? He does the work that God needs him to do. He, he comes down the mountain and he, he heals a, a young demon-possessed boy. The story takes us from the base of this mountain to another mountain where, where Jesus dies on a cross and rises from an empty tomb. Where Jesus defeats the powers of sin devil, where Jesus looks at people like you and people like me and says, the consequences of your sins are forgiven. And so I've often said that the, the good news of Transfiguration Sunday isn't Jesus in his glory on top of the mountain. The good news of Transfiguration Sunday is that Jesus comes down the mountain and meets us in the places where we already live in the valley, on the plateau. 
And then he heads to a, another mountain to show us that the realities of life that we experience right now, these realities will one day be a thing of the past. You know, as we wait for that day to come, as we wait for the day that Jesus returns to make all things new, every so often, Jesus gives us a a glimpse of glory to sustain our faith on the long road of life. Now, there's a saying in uh, Christian circles uh, that every Sunday is uh, a little Easter, and uh, I don't know exactly where the phrase originated, but it's, it's used to describe the idea that, that what happens on Easter is so significant that we don't just celebrate it once a year. We celebrate it every single Sunday that we get together. You know, as I've uh, been thinking about uh, Transfiguration Sunday this past week, uh, a holiday that's quite honestly a little weird. I mean, Jesus glowing on top of a mountain it's, uh, it struck me that in a lot of ways, every single Sunday is also a, a little transfiguration too. Uh, which isn't to say that, uh, that every time we get together, we have a mountaintop experience. I mean, too often I'm preaching and my mic starts cutting in and out. Uh, every time we get together isn't just a mountaintop experience in that sense. But it is to say that every time we get together, we do get this picture of what God's kingdom will be like as people who are old and young, people from different tribes and races, people with different histories and backgrounds get together to remember what's really real. That though we have often strayed and wandered from God, the Lord of all creation takes interest in us. And he loves us. And he forgives us. And when we go to that table, he even feeds us. And that's why it's uh, my hope and prayer that on a day like today, this little transfiguration, what we do here on Sundays and what we do throughout the week, would sustain your faith through the long road of life. As God sends people like me and people like you out into the world, to show his love, and to show everyone the kind of hope that we have in him. Amen.